Hi, I'm downtown Josh Brown. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2020. The What's first, <laughs> The first, what are your thoughts of the year? I'm here as always with Michael Batnick. Michael doesn't know what I'm going to ask him about. I don't know what he's going to ask me about. Stick around. Let's see what's going on. All right, I'm going to go first. Uh, Nick Majuli wrote about rebalancing, import, uh, rebalancing within an asset class. Uh, Corey Hofstein just did that big piece about um, rebalancing between asset classes. I wanted to ask you two things about this. The first is, isn't the takeaway on rebalancing not so much that there is a silver bullet, like this is the exact right time and right amount, but just that you want to stick to doing the same thing consistently, and even if it's not optimal, that's better than moving your rebalance around throughout the year? Is it like, would you say that's like the big takeaway with these things? Well, it depends who we're talking to. But I think the, the first thing that you said is correct. There is definitely no silver bullet. Rebalancing. We, time- did, the, we did this work years yeah. ago. Rebalancing timing luck is definitely a thing. Right. So it matters. Right. Um, I don't really have that. Ha- well, so it has an effect. Yeah, absolutely. But it could change. Like, you, like, in other words, you could look at the last 30 years and say, if you just rebalance in July, turns out that's better than August, September. Like, you can do that. Or you can say the optimal number of rebalances over the last 30 years has been two a year. So I, I would say it matters, but it's out of our hands for most people. It's Right. It's almost like a lucky thing that happens. Yeah. But so then you don't want to keep changing what you're well, doing. Well, I think people like Corey that have the chops to really like um, engineer something can probably take a stab at it. Right. But for most people watching this, they should step away. All right, second part of that. Why do you think there's so much interest in rebalancing? Is it because so many financial advisors have settled on the idea that they're doing asset allocation and I, they're not doing individual stocks? So maybe this is something they could say, here's where we're different. Here's our rebalancing strategy. I don't think there is a lot of interest in it. I think the only reason why there is some interest is because Corey writes about it. Corey, Nick, Hosted, you've yeah. written about it. Ben is, I mean, we, we it's not talk a hot, about it. It's, yeah, but it's, it's not a hot topic. Okay. All right. What do you got? I want to talk about Instagram targeting. So about yeah, Instagram targeted? Yeah, targeting. Targeting. Okay. I don't know if you noticed this, but when you open Instagram, now on the bottom it says from Facebook. I think yeah. that's a new thing. Yeah. So Facebook targeting. Uh, yesterday, somebody sent me an image in San Francisco. It's a giant billboard. And the picture of the billboard is a woman with an afro. I'm a bald man. I don't know if you noticed this. Yeah, you are. So I was on Instagram. I put this picture on Instagram and I scrolled down and the- like you posted it as a post. Yes. Okay. The, the what, were you, what were you trying to say? What was, the, like, what was the post? It was unrelated to the hairstyle. Uh, no fee for a negative balance I'm in. So it was, it was like, like a, a billboard. It was like okay. an LOL top I got it. thing. Got it. The next image that came up in my feed was some sort of um, athletic wear, whatever, because that's what I've been buying lately on Instagram. A man with an afro. Right. So the, the, I, you showed it to me. The Holy hair was cow. So you were blown away by the fact that there's an algorithm reading the content of the picture? Yeah, like, I don't know if I should. I don't know if, with an ad? I don't know if I should be blown away, but I was. Um, I'm, pretty, I'm still pretty blown away by that. Uh, the, I mean, it, I assume that they did that because if someone's posting pictures of a product, they may want to buy a product. And obviously, a person is not a product. But so, so, then, so then on the flip side, how come telephone companies or these robocalls can't figure out how to target properly? Because I just got a voicemail um, before we press record. The voicemail was in Asian. I don't know what language it was. but I get those too. It's in Chinese. So all the time. 
Yeah. How come they're they're like thirty years behind? Um, I think I think those robocalls are like low rent operations, and you're comparing it with Facebook, which is like a seven hundred billion dollar corporation, and so one company has the resources to like analyze the composition of a picture and show someone something similar. And one company is just like, let's spray. Yeah. So what, so what's next for Facebook, Instagram? Because I like can't open Instagram anymore without buying something. They've, they know me so well. So that's like the double edged sword is there are people like, Oh, Instagram's spying on me. It's like, dude, you spend two hours on there a day. They give it to you for free. It's my personal shopper. Yeah. And what would you rather see? Like, do you want to see an ad for tennis rackets if you've never posted anything about tennis before? Wouldn't that be a waste of your time to look at that ad? At least they're showing you stuff that you buy all the time. Like, I don't know. I, it's okay. Like, that's the reality of the world we live in. Don't, don't, be, uh, don't be upset about it. Um, Vanguard started the... All right, so let me back up. The last Barons of the Year was, I think it was a cover story about Vanguard. And... The gist of the article was, is Vanguard losing losing its edge? I just want to read you one really quickly. Um, Yet its castle is now under siege. Its low-cost advantage is being eroded by advances in technology, industry consolidation, heightened competition. Index funds are so inexpensive across the industry that Vanguard's prices are no longer the lowest. Um, And then they go on and on. Competitors are circling, Charles Schwab, et cetera. So Vanguard started off the year, like five days later, cutting commissions on options trading and I think mutual fund trading to zero. Did on, the, on, on, non- on their brokerage platform. On non-Vanguard products. On everything. On everything. Their products were always free, I believe. Yeah, now free. it's everything right. on their platform you want to buy, basically, is, is nothing. Um, did Vanguard react to the Barron's article? Like, was this something they were going to do eventually? And then the Barron's article kind of prodded them into dropping this on January 3rd or January 2nd? I don't think they moved that quickly. You, we saw uh, Fidelity, TD. We saw them all react to Schwab Yeah, I within think a week. that Fidelity and TD had the red button ready right. for whenever it was going to occur. Right. So they were, they were like, they, they planned ahead for this. I don't know that Vanguard's going to react to a Barron's uh, So on options trading, this was the last thing that you could charge money for yeah. in the world. Like as a, as a brokerage platform, whether you are a huge investment bank with a brokerage arm or a discount broker, like options were the sizzle. And so many commercials on financial television are options related because there was a margin there. You could charge $24 and then it was $12. But like there well, was something. With options, you're gambling and there's no, like the, the entry fee is like irrelevant, right? You're trying to like triple your money. You're trying to, right. You're trying to put $2,000 into something that could be worth 10000 right. So 24 bucks, who cares? But so do you, you don't care. But I don't think that people on Vanguard's platform are trading options, do you? Well, that was surprising to me. Unless they're doing covered calls. To put, yeah, to, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that goes on. Yeah, I don't, right. I don't think they have as big of a like options speculator business. So this, this in the article surprised me that more than two trillion of Vanguard's funds are held through intermediaries. More than two trillion. What, what's an intermediary? Financial like another, advisors. another. Yeah, yeah. No, that's not surprising. Um, why are you were surprised by that? Well, not necessarily just that, but the second part of that was it's the fastest growing part of their business. That surprised me. That financial advisors using Vanguard funds. Yeah. No, I guess I'm not surprised by that either. Um, All right. I, but, uh, you know, iShares has, has been crushing it lately, so they anything, don't have it to themselves. Anything else? No. What do you got? Uh, let's talk about IPO performance. You gave me some stats yesterday. Yeah, on, I was shocked by this one. So you gave me the median, and I was like, well, what is the average? And your retort silenced me. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so the median IPO performance over the last, what did I say, 10 years? I don't remember. Yeah, since 2010. I think from 2010 to through the end of 2019, the median IPO performance was 20 percentage points worse than the market itself. Right. So then, I, so then I said, what was the average? And the average basically tracked the market. And then you said. Yeah. So the And now the average is not as bad. And the reason is there are 2% of IPOs that do 200% or more. So it's like and the market. It's so much worse. It's totally, it's, but, a lottery, but, it's lottery tickets. But your point was you're not buying a basket of IPO stocks. So you really should use the median. Right. So people are like, well, why would you use the median? Because it makes it look so much worse. It's like, no, the median is a more realistic way to think about how an individual investor would buy IPOs. There is no individual investor who can get access. Even if they said, I'm going to put $10,000 into every IPO that comes out this year, you probably couldn't. And you're certainly not doing it at an equal weight or, or cap weighting. Right. So the av- average IPO performance is irrelevant to the investor. All right. So what's the median is like, hey, I'm going to take a shot on right. a few IPOs this year. It's fucking worse than the lottery. So I looked at, there's an ETF for this, the Renaissance IPO ETF. I don't know how it's weighted. Right. But it came uh, onto the market in October 2013. Right. And it is up 63%. Since 2013? That's yep. not good. S&P 500 is up 113%. So it did half the performance of the S&P 500. Yeah. Well, you're cherry picking. Why? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I just feel like people are going to say that. Well, here's why this is relevant. Um, there are still financial advisors, mostly who work at wirehouse firms, who are um, daily engaged in underwriting and bringing um, you know, IPOs and secondaries and things that the investment bank is underwriting, bringing those to their high net worth investors as almost like – this is why you keep your money with me. So I would say I can get you into IPOs. I would say it's that's terrible. A, that's a that's a tiny tiny piece of the advisory assets. Would you say it's much bigger than I think? No, it's a tiny piece, but it's a big part of what they sell as their value add. Got it. So still, like, you think still? Depends. If there's a hot IPO, then yes. I feel like sort of this after, year probably no. I feel like after Facebook, that might have went away. You would say that, but then people could point to some massive winners that, that came out of the gates and worked out. Okay. There haven't been a lot lately. The high-profile IPOs of last year were a bust. Lyft was a bust. Uber was a bust. WeWork ended up not happening, although that would have been a bonanza. Slack. Uh, Slack was a bust. Peloton. Uh, Peloton blew up. Right. So depending on the year and how well the high-profile deals did, that's when you would hear people crowing about, oh, look at all these IPOs I get you. It turns out the median IPO does terribly. So it's when people say it's a stock picker's market, it really is an IPO picker's market. You have to really be in the right name because if you just take a shot on a bunch of them, it's very hard to do it. Um, what, what do you got? Oh, it's me. I wanted to talk about Uncut Gems. We talked about the movie itself. Um, I, I don't know how many people in our audience have seen it, so let's not do any spoilers. But um, it's a personal finance movie. Excuse I want to say. Okay. It's a personal finance right, movie. make the pitch. My big reaction, and I don't know how many personal finance movies there are, but like that's the overarching theme of the movie. Because it's not about anything. It's a character study. But it, what it's really about is a guy who's living beyond his means. And obviously, it's like a very exaggerated version of that. But you and I both grew up knowing people from Long Island, commute into the city, work in the Garmin Center, work in the Diamond District, work on Wall Street, living like 10 times above what they could really afford. Well, that, That's the story. Okay, good point. 
Um, when I was a child, I had no concept of of what people's parents did for a living. Right. Um, I thought that the car they drove meant how much money they had. So did I. Which I think is what most children I assume. I think that's what my kids think right yeah, now. Yeah, I think, I think absolutely. Um, so Howard Ratner, for instance, drove an S-Class Mercedes. Yeah. Giant house and couldn't pay his bills. There's a scene where he puts his dad into a chauffeured car, but I don't think that's his dad's car. It was, like his, it was his father-in-law. His father-in-law. He like puts him into a chauffeured yeah, yeah. Bentley. Yeah. But it, I oh, I assume that was his father-in-law's car, but you might be right. No, I think he hired the car just for that one event. Uh, the best description of that movie that I heard was from Cousin Sal. He said that the entire movie was like the last 30 minutes of Goodfellas. Yeah. It was pure anxiety. I found it very uncomfortable. The, the, the script itself, the way that they shot it. Like the up close, everybody talking over each other. Yeah. It was it was not a, it was a very uncomfortable movie. But don't you feel like they captured New York that way? Isn't that what it's like to be not in a diamond showroom, but like with ten New Yorkers all talking over each other a mile a minute? Like that, it felt very real. And then, my actually my friend Adam, he said he's like it was okay. I didn't love it. Why? The entire movie, like I wanted the Xanax. I'm like, but that was what they right. were trying That's, to do to that, you. They nailed it. They So they nailed it. Yeah. He's like, oh, well, I don't like that. All right. <laughs> I got it. All right. Um, see you. Okay. What was, take a second. What was the biggest surprise for you in 2019? Stock, asset class, any, like in terms of in the, in the market? Uh, well, besides like the performance? Just, I don't know. Just go. Just go. Um, I would say the degree to which sentiment turned. 180 from December through June, like this, that's six month span. So you, you end last year with a 20% bear market in, in the S and P 500, much worse overseas, believe it or not. And then by the midpoint of the following year, you're up like 20% and you're on your way to being up 30%. And it didn't seem like anything had really changed in terms of fundamentals other than like the fed reversed course. And that, like, that's it. Nothing else was required. In other words, earnings were still down on the year. Everyone who had been bearish on the market in January of last year because of earnings, like we're going to have an earnings recession, earnings are going to be flat to negative, they were right. And it just was so irrelevant and sentiment was the whole reason for it. So just like the ability of the investor class to just completely change its mind. Do you think there are any lessons? It's asto- be- still astonishing. Any me. lessons to be learned there? Because that I've- is the lesson. Like even if you nail, even if you nail the fundamentals and the macroeconomic conditions, you still may be wrong on what prices do in reaction to those fundamentals. Totally agree. However, what if we were sitting here today and the market was down 20%? Would they have been right and right? Yeah, but we don't we don't get the, we don't get to have a counterfactual. Like the only, I did this post at the end of the year called "No Asterisks" or the beginning of this year. I was I was basically like, look, that was very good, by the way. So, in other words, all of your rhetoric, um, the Fed, international central banks, taxes, the president's crazy, like all of the shit that uh, buybacks, all of the things that you're doing commentary on, they're all in the pot. They've already been stirred into the pot. Um, now, the market could change its mind about these things, but at the end of the day, it's not like you're introducing new dynamics that everyone's not aware of. And still, this is a decade with zero recessions, a handful of cyclical bear markets, no new secular bear market, 
Um, and we did about 15% a year on average in the S&P, only one down year out of 10. Like, that's what happened. And you don't get to say, yeah, but it's only because X. X, we know, we all agree that X happened. Right. Like, that's all in the pot. So anyway, that was my, that was my rant. Um, I wanted to ask you about the Bill Ackman comeback, just to, just to finish out here. Uh, he did 58% in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, the most interesting aspect to me, and I want to ask you about this part of it, he kind of gives Buffett a shout out in his letter about the need to have, I think he calls it permanent capital. So 80% of his hedge fund is now owned by his publicly traded vehicle, which is called Pershing Square Holdings. So in other words, he doesn't have to answer to 100% of the dollars, the investors in the fund anymore. So he can still do what he does best, which is like super concentrated, gigantic positions, swing for the fences, feast and famine. Like that's what he's always done. And now he can do it almost with impunity because he's not answering to 55,000 different pension funds or whatever. So my, my question is, shouldn't this be the goal of every speculator who's going to be a professional is as quickly as you can get rid of investors you have to answer to? Well, I mean, that's, that's very difficult. Obviously, only a few people have that luxury. But you're right. And Buffett has spoken about this. Like They would rather have lumpy returns that are this big and smooth that are this big. And it's really, really hard to stick with an investor who's feast or famine. Buffett figured this out in 1969. So, he, so, he liquidated his partnership. So it's almost impossible. Um, I thought the interesting thing about the Ackman numbers was that like nobody was really talking about it. I didn't really see much buzz about it. Well, that's part two. He didn't show up at Irisone. He wasn't on the circuit. He didn't come on TV. He didn't do 500-page slideshow, um, you know, trying to convince people that he's right. He like his posi- he bought Chipotle in 2016. It was up 100% by the midpoint of 2019. Crushed it. He wasn't out there trying to get other people to agree with him. Yeah. Um, and I thought that that was like really cool to see that comeback because um, you know we don't root, root against anybody. Like in, like you shouldn't be rooting against people. So he had a really 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 horrendous run, and now it looks like he's turned things around, and he emerges on the other side with nobody to answer to. Mm. Um, he started this Pershing Square Holdings thing, I think in 2014. So like it came public, I think it's public in Europe. Um, it's a publicly traded vehicle to house his hedge fund among other investments. And that's now where the capital comes from. So that's like, for me, if I were a professional speculator taking big shots like that, I think the only way to do it is to not have to explain your trades to people. So anyway, all right, that's all I got. Is that all you got? I'm done. Guys, do me a favor. Go in the comments and compliment Michael on his button-down shirt. He did that for you. Um, You spoke, we listened, and this is Michael Batnick 2.0, fresh for 2020. Uh, Let us know what your thoughts are on these topics. We love your feedback, most of your feedback. Um, Go ahead and subscribe if you're not already. Give us a like. We will see you uh, very soon.